2: And on today's show, we're talking about equity compensation. More specifically, we're talking about the importance of negotiating for more equity every single time you get a chance. Now, if you listen to episode 23 in season one with Brooke Harley about the gender wage gap in equity compensation and thought to yourself, man, I'd really like to hear more from her. Well, then you're in luck. And if you're listening to me talk right now and wondering who the heck is Brooke Harley, then you need to go back and download episode 23 right now so that you can listen to that conversation immediately following this one. Go ahead. I'll wait. A fan favorite, Brooke Harley is the founder and CEO of Class Rebel, an online class e-learning company that offers classes focused on wealth building, angel investing, and the basics of managing equity. She also has an MBA in finance and earned a JD from York University. Prior to founding Class Rebel, Brooke has worked as a corporate attorney as well as a venture investor and startup board member. So with that brief introduction, welcome, Brooke Harley, back to the Tech Money podcast.
3: Thanks so much, Malcolm. It's so nice to be back.
2: Yeah, you're our first ever repeat guest. So I'm going to test this out and ask you again the same question I usually like to start with, which is what else should I have included about you in my intro?
3: Um, well, I mean, it was really Lululemon leaving law and going to um, a company that had just gone public. That um, was really is what turned uh, things for me in terms of um, negotiating equity comp and what changed everything. And what happened there has led to uh, a big part of what we're going to teach um, in Class Rebels newest course negotiating your equity comp. But other than that, I think you nailed it. Thanks very much.
2: No, thanks you very much for uh letting go of the big reveal so early in the the episode. Now people don't actually have to to listen all the way through. No, I'm kidding. Um so that no, is We can uh, edit it out, right? No, 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 it's all good. Uh But let's let's go back for a second and actually dig in a little bit more on what you just said, because for those who haven't yet listened to episode 23 in a perfect world, I'd I'd love to have everybody kind of follow this thing chronologically. But realistically, that's just not the way podcasts work. So for those who haven't yet listened to uh, episode 23, they're being introduced to Brooke for the first time. Uh, Why don't you walk us through your journey as employee number 20 or so working for Lululemon and the intense negotiation you went through? Uh, with your CFO over your equity comp at the time.
3: Yeah. So this was back in the great recession. And I don't know where many of the listeners were, if they can imagine or if they were impacted by that.
2: I'd rather Um, not imagine that time.
3: Right. Like I certainly was, I um, had left my love affair with the law. It was a cushy enough gig, hard work, but Um, financial safety for sure and I'd left to go do an MBA and when I tell you I couldn't get a job coming out of that to save my life and um, I almost couldn't pay my mortgage or pay the bank anymore Um, and so losing my um, apartment was a real concern at the time so I was definitely impacted and um, you know I chased the, the the CFO of Lululemon around town for a job Back then, there was no job posted, nothing like that. It's just a company I wanted to work for. And they had just gone public. So I wasn't, I wasn't the 20th employee, but it was still early in their growth. And so I chased him around for a job. And when finally that job offer came, which it felt like it was very difficult to, and slow to get, I negotiated as hard as I could with particular zeroing in on the equity compensation piece. If you can imagine during the Great Recession, uh, the stock uh, for yoga pants really hit the bottom. Nobody (laughs) thought that company was going to do well for the foreseeable future. And so it became as cheap as it ever would become at about $10 per share. Uh, So, you know, and we're seeing the market um, go back, go dive right now, which actually makes it a very good time to be negotiating for equity comp. Mm, Um, That's a good point. And so in that negotiation, I didn't have much to fall back on. I was really, it was a desperate time. Um, I really felt more squeezed financially than I've ever felt. There was no one that was going to come in and save me. If I couldn't pay my mortgage, I was going to lose my home. Yeah. I eked out another offer at the same time and used the offer, uh, the, the competing offer. It was investment banking for as much leverage as I could to, to get the best deal I could at Lululemon with a real focus on equity comp because that's the piece I thought was going to matter.
2: Stay there for a second, because you made that point to me in the past that you decided to focus all your efforts uh, on the equity side of the conversation, rather than asking for additional cash or salary. Why was that? Because it sounds like the cash would have made a real impact in the shorter term in that moment.
3: it, it, It would have been helpful. It always is. But, you know, this is how we encourage people to think about it, especially in the class. There's Part in the anatomy in the anatomy of an offer, you know, from these big public companies, say Microsoft or Google, there's the parts that we would categorize as just living, keeping the lights on, things like your salary, your bonus, any kind of signing bonus, things like that, um, even some of the benefits. That's like that's the living part, and then there's the life changing part, which is the equity compensation, which. Could look like stock options. It could look like RSUs, or or even it could look like employee st- share purchase plans. The thing with the equity um, part of an offer is that there's no cap on how well it can do. If the company does well, the sky's the limit. As we've seen, you know, for early employees of Facebook, Google, any company, Lululemon. So there's no cap to what that what those equity grants can com- become worth. And they can literally set you free financially at a really early stage in your career if you get a hold of as many as you can. So that's what I was focused on going in. Um, I wasn't comfortable financially at all when I got that offer. I was suffering uh, and I was scared um, about whether I could keep my own home, Um, but I knew that you know, the basic salary would not be super comfortable, but I could live with mm-hmm. it. And it wasn't going to change my life. Anyway, an extra 10 grand doesn't change anybody's condition.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, that, so it's interesting to me that you use the phrase life-changing money. Uh, the, the fact that the equity component or the, uh, yeah, the equity component of the total comp conversation is, the potential for life changing money, because as I understand it, the result of that negotiation where you fought like hell for the uh, additional equity resulted in life changing money for you, which has allowed you to make these other pivots that we'll get into in a moment here. But uh, can you just speak, you know, a little bit more about why it was important to you, even with all of the different things that you had working against you in that moment financially? And I appreciate you being as transparent as you have been about this. So uh Thank you for that, because usually we like to focus on like the the peaks of our journey and never the valleys. And so we just describe it as one peak to another. But I'm just thinking I'm trying to put myself in the mindset of the person who's got all these other things happening at home and still thinks it's that important in that moment during the Great Recession when everybody thinks the world's coming to an end just about and you're busy fighting over uh, equity in a company that's worth ten dollars a share.
3: Yeah. So, so if I was gonna leave leave the safety of law, then that was risk. That was risk number one. And why would I do that? It it I left law because I didn't necessarily want to be on such a predictable path that can lead you to some financial comfort, but there's no, you're certainly not financially free as a lawyer. And, um, that is a very unglamorous life. Actually, if you, if you know any, um, you, you're a slave to your clients and it's, I don't know if you even get a chance to enjoy the money that you make. So I had already decided to take the risk of leaving that time for money exchange. Um, and so that was risk decision number one. And so, if I'd already chosen to leave the time for money equation, then, then I've moved into something else, and, and to me that was uh, equity upside, um, which can be more risky, it can be worth nothing, but then again, it can change your life. So I'd already made decisions around whether trading time for money my whole life was going to be a good idea, and I'd already decided no. And that and i left a whole career over that i trained for for years and i was at a top firm and it was comfortable so if i was already leaving time for money that equation then I, then i certainly wasn't just going to repeat a time for money conversation going into a new job after you know an investment in a new education too
4: that so sense. i'd
3: already made the decision um that time for money doesn't free you from anything
2: yeah So, uh, speaking of those pivots you made following your tour of duty at Lululemon, right, I I mentioned that you were able to do quite a few things after you exited that role. You're now the founder of Class Rebel, so we're fast-forwarding a few years, but can you say a bit about what Class Rebel is and does and the work that you and your team are doing?
3: Yeah, thank you so much for asking. So, Class Rebel is a modern education company. Our mission is to make modern live education a public good, something everyone uh, can afford is something everyone that has access to. So in reality, what does that mean? We're teaching courses um, that deliver skill sets that will move you ahead 10 years. Um, right now, we're starting with wealth and side hustle. And the courses are taught live, super interactive. You meet people from all over, and they're just $99 in, in the hopes that most most people can afford that and uh, versus what you would normally have to pay for courses like this. It'd be in the hundreds. It'd be in the thousands where people, when we meet them in their 30s and 40s, they have kids, they have mortgages, they have college debt, medical debt, just can't afford to, people can't afford to be investing thousands of dollars again in an education. But if you look at the bigger picture, we are living to 100 years old. And then most of us stop our education at 21 after our first degree. And so, and then we pay for that college debt for the rest of our lives. It's an absurd cultural construct that we would, that we would stop learning formally at 21 and then do what for 80 years? I don't know, like podcasts yeah. and Netflix. That's an absurd cultural <laughs> construct.
2: But so one of the interesting things is to the point you're making, we we normally as American people, at least I don't know how the majority of the world sees this educational investment, but we invest tens of thousands of dollars normally into a education, a formal education, whether it's undergrad grad school, terminal degrees, all those kinds of things. And then usually when we get to finally the top of the the mountain in academia, we don't spend a dime on financial education, which is backwards when you think about it. But that is where we are today uh, as a as a construct.
3: Yeah. And, and um, I'm just not sure that this is is really serving the highest quality life if we're now living to 100 years and technology is changing the way it, it's changing and i'm persuaded by professor scott galloway from nyu in, in that he's saying the price of education has gone up and up and up and it's serving to reinforce a class system in the u.s uh, who who has access to education who can afford it? it's
2: interesting it. too to hear galloway say that being a super rich guy himself like I, I, I have heard his rants on this uh on this subject. And it's funny because you can get fired up really quickly and go, yeah, yeah, this guy's right. But also the fact that he's telling on his cronies is also what's, what's really interesting. Like he's in academia. He is a super rich guy. And he's on the boards of all the companies he rails against. And still, that's his his approach. Yeah.
3: He's well, he's the first to to link his success to education. And I think it was the University of Southern California that he, UCLA um, that he went to and um, he describes growing up in financial constraints after his mom and dad divorced and that it was really coming out of university that it was the university that, that education that turned everything for him. I think he roots all a lot of his financial success back to that education um, and how cheap and easy it was to get in back in his day and how different it is now. And so when it comes to uh, equality uh, when he says the cost of education and access routes are becoming reinforcers of class systems, I, I believe that's true. And also some of these edu- some of the, the universities and colleges don't seem that motivated to be delivering the most relevant up-to-date materials either. And so with class rebel, We make courses that develop that deliver a skill set to move you ten years ahead. Whether that's angel investing, raising money for your startup, negotiating your equity comp—something you can really use that can totally change the opportunities you have in front of you—at a price everybody can afford. So that's the goal, and it's all live, um, which we think has the highest quality uh, is the highest quality education. And we know we know people like it because the completion rates for what we're doing is seventy-five percent. It's the dirty secret of online education, those stale videos. It's less than 5% that people complete. So we think we have something, a new experience, you know, and, t- and taught by street fighters, basically, people that didn't go to Harvard but succeeded anyway. Uh, Tivonia, uh, Tivonia Evans, a um, uh, Black woman from Atlanta who's becoming our, uh, is coming on as our crypto instructor. She's a correspondent for CNN, uh, CNBC. She launched Guapcoin. Um, So she's the real deal and she'll be teaching for us.
2: Yeah, it, the last thing I'll say about that is just the comparison of what you just shared, which is I, I mentioned tens of thousand dollars for a bachelor's degree and in, in something normal like business administration, if that's even a major anymore. I think they require you to specialize a little more than that. But let's just say and it cost you forty thousand dollars to go to school in state compared to, you know, what, a few hundred dollars to consume online education that helps you now understand a little bit better how to uh, invest your dollars like it the comparison is is starkly skewed uh, in that favor. So uh, I want to stay there for a second, though, because you teased in the very beginning and then I stopped you that you had something you were going to uh, announce the rollout of your new offering around teaching folks how to negotiate for more equity. This was something that you and I talked about briefly on our on our initial episode we did with you. Uh, what is it about this particular topic that you thought was important enough to design an entire course around it. That is negotiating for more equity.
3: The reason why it's so important is that the thirty-minute conversation you have back and forth going in could be the most impactful thirty minutes of your life. And it, and I know that because it, it it's true for me. When I looked at that negotiation on the way into Lululemon, it was really. What we talked about and what I was able to negotiate in thirty minutes, and then and then the stock and the market took its course for the next few years. After that, it, it was nothing I did in the in the job day to day that earned me that sort of financial freedom that came from a a stock going up and up and up. Um, so it was all I did was keep my job and do a decent job for the next few years because stock options are just time vested mostly, um, and so it was it was all in this thirty minute. It was all in this 30-minute conversation where I was able to double the equity grant I was being offered that then led to a windfall that led to other opportunities. And so um, it, it, its I just think if people can get a hold of this skill set, you can have negotiation just in 30 minutes that really ends up giving you a ton of financial freedom whether that's to leave your job that you don't like, start a new company, spend more time with your family. Um, But then it also, you know, it also gives you access to different asset classes like real estate, private investing, all these things. So it's not that hard um, of a skill set to learn negotiating for your equity comp. We're going to have to learn about stock option mechanics, RSU mechanics, things like this. But once you have it, you have it and you have it for your whole life. So you can use it today as a, you know, 25 year old going into, you know, one of your early jobs, but then five years later, you can use it again. When you leave, you can use it again in your forties, fifties, sixties. When you're consulting for startups on the side, you're not working anymore. You can still take equity. So I feel, I feel passionate and strongly about this topic because once you learn it, you can use it over and over and over again. I certainly have. Um, and it is a it's a life changing skill set.
2: Walk us through it. I won't ask you to give away your secret sauce here on the podcast. And truthfully, the, the, the show isn't long enough to fit it all in there anyway. But can you sort of give us the abridged version uh, or the key pillars of the course? What are you know, what are some of the more important rules people should know when approaching a negotiation like this? Let's start there.
3: Well, the first the the most important thing to know um is is how these plans even work. It's it's sort of the boring mechanics of how they work because if you don't know how they work, you won't even know how to negotiate for them. Um, after hearing me talk today, you may be able to identify that say TikTok came back to you with an offer, but it was just cash. It was salary and bonus. There was no equity. But if you don't know RSU mechanics or or option mechanics you're not going to feel confident going back and starting to negotiate for that equity piece. So one of the foundations of the course is what are the 15 key terms and concepts of an employment stock option plan? Um, And so we'll cover things like what is is a strike price uh, what is um, what is a vesting schedule what is a cliff if you are fired for cause what's going to happen to your vested options if you are fired not for cause what's going to happen what does it mean to be in the money what does it mean to be out of the money what's an option pool uh, what is a 1015b plan what does it mean to be in a blackout period all these things if you understand how it works then you can have a really intelligent negotiation on your way in. But if you don't know the 15 key points of a stock option plan, then you won't have the confidence to negotiate for yourself. So that to me is the foundation of the whole course. And we start with the stock option plan because I think everything else that we'll talk about in the course is basically a derivative of it. Um, The restricted stock units, you know, once you learn the, the employee stock options, then the RSUs feel actually quite easy to learn. Um, An employee share purchase plan, that's different. That's a third type of equity. Um, But once you've learned, again, the stock option plan, that sounds all of a sudden that sounds familiar. So the foundation of the course is those 15 pieces of the stock option plan, because that is that sets you up for everything else. Most people don't have a clue of what those 15 things are.
2: How is this delivered is this over the course of you know an hour is this multiple sessions how do you guys actually uh, deliver this?
3: Yeah so we go um, four nights in a week so it's really um, a condensed it's a condensed experience so we'll meet on a Monday night uh, it always starts on a Monday night um, for two hours and then we meet again, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and it's two hours at a time. And so, the first night we will talk about um, negotiating in a public company context, the employee stock option plan. We'll talk about some foundations the first night. The second night, we're staying on, you know, your public company negotiation. We'll start talking about RSUs, restricted stock units, and the employee share purchase plans. Night three. We're going to get into negotiating with private companies, private startups. Imagine you're going into TikTok, which is still a private company, or um, any number of startups that you read in TechCrunch. That's a different, this is, it, it's a different negotiation and different considerations going in. And then on the last night, we're going to talk about, okay, what if you're negotiating as a consultant to a startup or a public company? You're not an employee. What are what are the different considerations, how might you approach negotiation there? So that's why we think this course is so helpful for people in in their entire careers, because you'll know what to do if you're going into a public company, a private company, and if you're doing some side gigs consulting, uh, you can get equity that way too.
2: You mentioned the difference between negotiating at a public versus a private company a couple of times. So I want to spend a moment there. Do you find it to be any easier to negotiate your equity at a publicly traded company versus one that's private or the other way around?
3: Although I've never personally experienced it um, because I actually haven't worked uh, for equity in a private company. I've negotiated for equity in a private company as a consultant, but never worked as an employee. The reason why I will say, I think you have a great shot um, of upping your equity comp in private companies is because those companies are earlier stage. They generally are very um, cash conservative. They are not kicking all, a lot of, off a lot of their own revenues. And so every dollar matters. And so if, you're, if you want more compensation, you can be sensitive to the fact that they're very cash sensitive and ask instead of for more cash, uh, for more equity. And they might be more receptive to that because of how cash sensitive they are in a private company. But in the research for this course, one thing that we came across was that when you're negotiating overall, you might run into a real brick wall, try to increase your salary band. But when you try to increase your equity grant, you know, for say from 10,000 options to 20,000 options, you'll, you'll see less resistance because you frankly are, the companies are dealing with less people asking for more equity because nobody really understands how to ask for more or how it even works or or whether they should value it so it's easier to it's actually i think the research we see is it's actually easier in a negotiation to move your equity comp up whether it's public company or private company than it is to move your salary up
2: i think you answered that question almost identically to how i would have <laughs> answered it but i've never actually been in the driver's seat in that negotiation right so in the work that i do at my day job working with folks in tech on their personal finances, we come to the salary negotiation conversation quite a bit, and I'm always in the passenger seat providing guidance and rooting them on, but I've never actually been in the driver's seat to see it. But my impression is basically what you just alluded to, which is that the private companies carve out that, their venture uh, backers carve out that equity pool intentionally so that they can be giving it away to keep key employees. And so you're much more free with that pool. Say it's 20% of the, the equity that's available. You're much more free with that pool because it was created to give away anyway, quote unquote, give away versus cash where, like you said, one more person's salary could be the difference between staying alive as a startup and not or keeping your lease as a startup or not. And so their focus is laser sharp on those dollars where the equity is still this mystical thing that's out there, but it's not worth much of anything worth fighting over right now because we're still just trying to stay alive. So I I take your point there. I, I I'm torn, honestly, between whether it's easier at public versus private, though, because it is at least easier to know what you're negotiating for at a public company. You can always just take a look at Google this company's ticker and you'll know what the value of a Amazon or a Microsoft or whatever is worth the day you're going to have this conversation so you can be able to assign real value to it. Whereas with a privately held company, you're negotiating for a lot of shares like a lot L O T not a lot as in quantity but you're negotiating for a lot of shares that you don't know what it's even going to be worth and so it's tough to say how much is worth fighting over and how much isn't
3: Yeah um I agree however if you're going if you're going to a startup versus a nice comfy established company then a lot of people are going there for the growth so even if you don't have perfect visibility into the, into the value of what you're negotiating for, which you never will, um, I still think it's worth doubling down on getting as much equity as you can. Because the reason you're going there in the first place is you believe it's a, a value, you know, a valuable, high growth company. One of the things we've heard in the mini class we did about people who are signing up for the course right now is it was the pain of the experience of being at a startup at the right time in the right place and they had failed to negotiate for equity on the way in. And they left the company with a feeling of, man, I was on the right boat. And and it ro- the tide rose for us. And I simply didn't have that conversation on the way in. And so I didn't get any part of it. So that's the pain, actually, the pain point that really draws people to our course is they, they knew they were in the right place at the right time. Or the other one was that they knew their their early contributions was what was creating the most sales and their therefore shareholder value, and they simply didn't have that thirty minute conversation on the way in. So, so they they were there at the right time, right place when the stock was increasing, or it was their efforts that created all the shareholder value over time, and they simply didn't have that thirty minute negotiation on the way in. Uh, so it's a real pain point.
2: Do you have any advice for how to go back and and double down or get a second bite at the apple, so to speak?
3: It's really interesting. So we have a page in the course where we talk about the nine negotiation tactics and things to know. And one of them is, and this is from my experience, but it's from the experience of all the interviews we've done, you simply never has have as much negotiating leverage as you do on the way in. So that is your time to double triple the equity uh, grant that you're being offered. It's the time to use leverage of the other the other companies are circling you. You're getting offers from um, Salesforce or Google, etc. So the combination of knowing that your highest amount of leverage is on the way in, once you're an employee they've got you, your leverage is very small, even if you threaten to walk. Um so knowing that your highest your highest amount of leverage is on your way in. Um and then the two other key negotiation tactics, well, there's at least 10 we go over in the course, but the two others in that early stages is come as armed as you can with your market mm-hmm. research. Mm-hmm. Um what are other what what are other people at your level and other tech companies, for example, getting on their way in. Talk to, just call up people that you know, use your network. So really being informed of market equity comp by calling people is another big one. And then the third one we believe is, and this is one of the most powerful ones, is for the offering company to believe that there's a competition for you. Um, okay. so if, if you can cook up an offer from Netflix and that's where you really want to work, you could probably cook up an offer from Disney as well from audible as well. So, so it's a mistake to just go after the one that you love. Don't fall in love with one company, cook up a few offers. If you can't, especially now in this environment, you should be able to, um, and so, you know, you can have the conversation of, Hey, I really want to be with you TikTok. you know, high growth. I'm so excited. But, you know, Salesforce is really interesting and they're offering me more salary. I want to be with TikTok. It's higher growth, but I want more equity because I'm coming for the growth. So having those that competition aspect is one of the most powerful things. And it it definitely worked for me in the Lululemon negotiation.
2: I think also being prepared to walk in that position uh, is also extremely valuable because what I have seen with my own clients where We've come in super aggressive, sometimes even more aggressive than they were comfortable being. But they said, we're just going to go for it and see what happens. And the company said, OK, well, if if Salesforce is offering you that better job, like you just said, then we suggest you go and take Salesforce's offer. And for two or three weeks, they were heartbroken. And I can't believe I, I went so hard. And this was such a big mistake. And then three weeks down the road, TikTok calls back and says, you know what? We really would love to have you here. Uh, we'll meet you where you were. And I've seen that happen more than once. And so I I would just say be comfortable setting your walking away number and holding tightly to it because you'd be surprised uh, how much leverage, as you just alluded to, you actually do have coming in the door. Um,
3: Yeah, absolutely. And, um, And in my experience, if you come back with something really high, Oftentimes, they're just going to say no and then see what you do. Are you really going to walk? Um, often, the the worst, neg- the worst consequence of asking for something really high is simply a no and then a staring contest as to whether you're going to walk or you're going to take the offer. Um, it's often not withdrawn. Um, so I, I do think a key fear for a lot of people is if they come in with something too, that seems too greedy, that they're going to be punished
1: Mm-hmm, by having mm-hmm. the
3: offer taken away. And I don't think that reality happens very often. You might get a no, but to be punished by having the offer withdrawn is I don't think that happens very often. So that's I, a psychological barrier, I think for people to get over.
2: But that's also why one of my rules for negotiating is simply to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Like in that moment for 30 minutes, like you, you, you termed it just, be aware that you're going to be uncomfortable for most of this 30 minutes, and get comfortable there, and and you'll be fine. You'll live.
3: To this day, 13 years later, I can remember really sweating the the Lululemon negotiation um, because I really wanted them to at least double, triple, or quadruple the equity offer to the point where I let their offer letter expire. That's how hardball I went, and I, I did have another offer in hand. Um, but I didn't want it as much as I wanted to work at Lululemon. Uh, and so I, I used the, the competing offer as leverage, but I still felt like I got into a staring contest, so much so that I let an, a good, healthy offer letter with Equity Comp expire to show how serious I was about doubling, tripling, quadrupling the grant. And I still remember sweating it out on that and thinking I'd taken it too far Um, So it is uncomfortable. This whole thing's uncomfortable.
2: Yeah, but it also lets people know what they're buying. I I think if I'm if I'm going into negotiation with somebody who's willing to fight me that hard, they're probably really great at what they do, too. Right. And so at least that's my my mindset as the hiring manager doing the 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 back and forth dance here. But so I I mentioned uh, one of my own like personal rules for negotiating anything. And this has made me think of another one based on something else. You said you're you're talking about how you guys start at the very beginning and teach folks the terminology that makes all the difference in the equation. And then you said something to the effect of making sure that you understand where you stand in relation to other people in your space who do a similar role. And that that triggered this in my mind, because one of my own rules is to obviously do your research and be prepared to discuss more than just the obvious one or two deal points. So in this instance, that would be knowing what similar companies are offering people working in a similar role as yours, for sure. That's obvious. But then what if you received a no on additional shares? You'd also want to be prepared to negotiate for an accelerated vesting timetable, for example, or front loading versus back loading or PSUs versus RSUs, et cetera. And that also requires you to understand all of the things that go into the equity equation. And so it's good that you guys are going through the basics, if you will, or the mechanics of how the 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 equity plan works so that you know where the other places are to go when you feel like you've come up against a brick wall.
3: Yeah, exactly. Malcolm, understanding, you know, the the 15 things, that's step one. But then understanding what parts of the offer are negotiable and what really aren't. Like you just said, if you can't increase the equity amount, that's the number one lever. You want, you want more options, you want a higher monetary value being offered. But if you can't increase that, you might be able to shorten your vesting period for sure, be able to shorten the cliff. And we talk about this in class, there are going to be some things that you just that aren't negotiable. Like a strike price in a public company is not negotiable. Um, it's really governed by law. So knowing your way around with with co- confidence and comfort, these 15 parts of an employee stock option plan, which do set the foundation for understanding RSUs, PSUs, all those things, having the confidence to move around those concepts and know what's negotiable, what's not, it, it's, it's a skill set that you can use for your whole life. And I, I really think the confidence in that conversation ups you as a candidate in the mind of the hiring manager, that you have that kind of sophistication
2: mm-hmm. to be focused on the it. right things.
3: Yes, yes,
2: I I, so what I'm taking away from from this conversation with you, if I if I can sum it up a little bit for us here is one, to make sure that you've done the groundwork of learning all of the different pieces that play a part in this equation, Two. It's making sure that you really know what your number is and what you need to get out of this negotiation before you ever go into it. And three, it's really doing the due diligence of going out there and shopping to see what else is available and hopefully coming back even with a competing offer that you can use as leverage because leverage is going to be your friend in a knockdown, dragout drag-out fight such as this. Did I miss anything as I'm coming up with my, you know, these are the things that you really have to do as the crux of becoming a really great negotiator on behalf of yourself where equity comp is concerned?
3: Honestly, if you distill the course down to three main purposes, I think you nailed it. You have to know the mechanics of stock options, RSUs, and employee share purchase plans to even negotiate them. So that is... Step one, stop one. But after that, you're the the best levers that you have negotiating on your way in are most certainly to know what you want and have as negotiation levers market research, the ability to walk away. And ideally, to me, this is the strongest lever you have is a is a competing offer for sure. This is this is what it all drills down to.
2: And I like the fact that you pointed out that in two thousand eight companies stock prices were basically selling for bargain basement prices and so if you were starting a new gig at a place then there's a very good chance that you were on an elevator that was on its ground floor anyway or very close to it and so all you really had to do was rest invest and you'd ride it back up to some higher point i won't say that we're necessarily at that point today i'm not going to make any predictions about the stock market on this thing very broadly but what what i will say is that the behavior of the mega cap tech companies like your Amazons and Google's and Microsoft's and Apple's that I've already seen scrambling in the last six months to reconfigure their equity? Uh, I mean, their, their total compensation packages to be more cash rich and less equity heavy. It means that they are very well aware that people are leaving because they're not getting enough out of the equity in the short term that they want to be getting. They're focused now on let's raise the cap that we put in place on the salary side of the equation to keep our people happy and make sure that they feel like they're getting more money in their pockets, which means that the majority of people are going about this the opposite direction of what we just got through telling them was important to do, which means that there's a huge opportunity for those people who do have a much more long term focus and are willing to go and take the the chance to focus on the equity side of the equation versus the how much cash can I get in my hand in my pocket right now in this moment. So uh, do with that what you will. But that's just something I see happening right now in the market based on conversations I've had with clients and
3: different oh, you know, yeah. outlets I, that I've I'm been reading, reading. Yeah, I've been reading the same headlines you just mentioned and how the stock market is sliding. Therefore, you have to focus more on your cash comp. And I just don't agree with that at all. I think watch the market carefully let's see what how it's going to slide but when the stock market drops and you're going into a public company and even a private one this is exactly in my view when you want to be focusing on equity comp because your strike price is going to be lower
2: and Um, if i'm that company i'm much more willing to give away the stock that nobody else seems to want than i am to give away additional cash
3: yeah Exactly. Uh, I think it's. I think it's a great time to be a young an employee. A young employee uh, switching jobs. Um, not just because people are now competing with the cash offers, but, um, the equity as well. So, I agree.
2: Well, so my last question to you uh, actually has almost nothing to do with everything else. We just got done discussing. But last time I asked you my usual final question about what you'd be doing if you weren't doing this this time, I'll ask you a different final question question, excuse me, which is what is it about this work that makes you want to do it? Like being a founder is not easy. Working in venture is not easy. Teaching people from the ground, teaching adults from the ground up is not easy. You've already made your money, so why bother?
3: I had to thank you for asking this question. I definitely had to confront uh, this question in my life at a point. Do I? And and maybe Malcolm, you have to. The question I had to ask myself was, Brooke, do you choose peace or do you choose adventure for your life? Because a lot of the adventures you choose are bringing some heartbreak and difficulty with them you know, so why don't maybe you just choose peace, you know, go back to practicing law, just mail it in every day, do, do that job and sort of li- live a peaceful life. And I chose I had to make a real decision that I wanted to start things from scratch, because it leads to a way more fulfilled life for me personally, when I meet people like you, I meet really interesting people that come to the classes, I meet interesting investors, this to me feels like I'm living a full life by putting things out there and meeting new people. Um, and, and some will fail and some works, but the serendipity that creating from nothing brings is the type of life I personally wanna lead. And it's, it leans more to adventure than peace. But there's been painful times in doing things like this that I've had to ask myself, do I choose adventure or do I choose peace? And I spoke to a girlfriend who was working, um, you know, the regular day job. And she's like, she's like Brooke, there is no peace. <laughs> you think that coming back, you think coming back to just a regular job where you're going to be in the politics of a big company, if you think that's peace, you're wrong. She's like, there is no peace. And so I said, OK, well, then I choose adventure.
2: Yeah, peace is a beach in Costa Rica. Other than that, uh, there there really is no uh, is no peace. But I, I tell you what, Brooke, I really appreciate you coming back to do this. This was great. Um, where can people find you if they want to learn more about you and or class rebel after this goes live?
3: yeah www.classrebel.com is the best place to go you can learn a little bit about my background there um check out the courses i think that's the best spot we got a little coverage in uh, wall street journal about this course negotiating your equity comp you can read about us there as well okay
2: well i tell you what with that eric with an a why don't you go ahead and close us out sir
4: brooke i so appreciate you coming back to the show um i i am going to just throw this out there If you do come back i do believe that the three of us should do some research to really see if podcasting from a beach in costa rica is peace and peaceful Um, malcolm if you'll agree to that just sign on the dotted line and we'll move on all right (laughs) anyway uh again thank you so much for being on the show malcolm thank you again for bringing fantastic guests to the show and our last thank you is always for you listening audience thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the tech money podcast with malcolm etheridge if you have not subscribed to the podcast yet please click the subscribe now button below This way, when Malcolm comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. We humbly ask that you share this podcast and leave a review, as this will help others find the show. You can connect with Malcolm on social at Malcolm on Money. We'd love to hear from you and answer any questions you have, and you can do so by emailing them to podcast at techmoney.com. Thanks again for listening today. For everyone at Tech Money, our hope is that this show helped make you a little smarter about your money.
1: This has been the Tech Money Podcast. For more information on today's topic, to review the show notes, or to catch up on past episodes, be sure to check out malcolmetheridge.com slash podcast. And if you have an idea for a show topic that you'd like us to cover, or you want to send us feedback, the web address again is malcolmetheridge.com. You can also find Malcolm across all social media platforms at Malcolm on Money. This episode was written and created by Malcolm Etheridge with the production, the editing and sound controls powered by Proudmouth. This has been a Malcolm on Money original. Thank you for listening.
0: um. you